Well, good morning. I'll have to admit there was a moment of panic when Bruce said Josh is going to be singing a song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely not what you want to hear. Um, Happy New Year. Um, I know some of you guys get, get updated emails from our missionaries. I, I saw this story from Nate Ryder last week. I just wanted to share it because to me it was so encouraging. He shared about a woman in their church. They serve in Japan. Uh, and if you don't know, Japan is not a, uh, a heavily Christianized country. There's a lot of missions efforts. We support three different families in Japan. But it is a culture... Uh, that is not very receptive to the gospel. And they have a woman in their church who came to faith 30 years ago, and her parents have never been a- encouraging to that uh, or receptive to that, and she plays keyboards. And they video their services, and um, she recently sent the link from their service to her parents, and they watched it and, and complimented the. Her mom said it was a nice service. And so the next time she played, she invited her parents and they came, and later that same week that the Lord must have been doing something in her mom's heart, uh, her mom came to faith after 30 years. And that's also a reminder that it can take a long time. And unfortunately, we don't always see the fruit we would like, uh, but just to, to be faithful, to witness to people, to share with people, to pray for people, um, and the Lord, the Lord blesses that. So I thought that was an encouraging story from, from Nate. Uh, thank you to, to the Halls. Thank you to Josh for that lovely song. Uh, thank you to Bruce and Pam for doing music this morning. And again, happy 2023. I'm praying for a great new year for this church and for everyone in this church. And I'll just say personally, I love it when New Year's Day is on a Sunday because that means that you have church right from the first day of the year. And I'm sure we have different reactions to New Year's Day. I'm sure some of us stayed up till midnight. I'm sure others were already asleep long before midnight. I'm sure some of us make New Year's resolutions every year. Look at New Year's Day as a fresh start. And for others, I'm sure you treat New Year's like it's any other day. But I think it's good to acknowledge the new year. Even when Jesus walked the earth, January 1st was already viewed as the first day of the year in the Roman calendar. In the Old Testament, before the Exodus and before the Passover, the Lord had told the Israelites that the month of the Passover would be their first month of the year. You actually see that in Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That was in the springtime. But over time, the celebration of the Jewish New Year became associated with the fall festivals. And that's fitting, too. The Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, if you've ever heard that term, falls 10 days before the Day of Atonement. As the New Year begins, it's a time of preparation for being reminded of our need for atonement and of God wiping the slate clean. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives us a fresh start. He gives us a new beginning. He washes away our sin when we come to him in faith. The Bible says that God's mercies are new every day. And what good news that is. 
And every day is a day to enjoy the mercies of God. And every day is also an opportunity for change, for reformations of the heart, for new or renewed commitment to the Lord. But when it's the first day of a new year, it can be an especially fitting time to ask the type of person, and more importantly, the type of Christian we want to be. And today can be a turning point. Perhaps you've heard the stats before on how the vast majority of people don't achieve their New Year's resolutions. I've read that anywhere from 80 to 90% of New Year's resolutions fail. And that's certainly a high percentage. But I'm optimistic because that means that 10 to 20% of people's New Year's resolutions succeed. In a moment, I'm going to read our passage. I haven't even started the sermon yet. It's from the book of Haggai. It's actually a passage I've preached on before, but I love this passage for New Year's Day because I think it's an important picture of people who let time pass by without first prioritizing their relationship with God. With that, we'll look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is a time is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes." Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this new year. And again, Lord, your mercies are new every day, regardless of if a New Year's resolution succeeds or fails. We have a gracious God, and so in that we rejoice. Lord, we pray for this new year. We pray for this church. We pray for everyone here, Lord, that we continue to grow as your people, that we would glorify you with our lives. Lord, we pray that we would continue to grow in faith and hope and love. 
Lord, we pray for our time this morning as we study in your word that we would again be pointed to you. Lord, that we would be reminded to keep you above all things, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys want to bring a battery up for me. Suppose I were to present you with a slice of your favorite kind of cake and a bowl of broccoli. If you could pick one of those right now, which one would you choose? The cake or the broccoli? And before you vote, thank you, let me remind you that you are in the house of God. <laughs> How many of you would choose the broccoli? By raising your hands. Liars. I mean, thank you. How many of you would choose the cake, obviously? It's not just with desserts that we make choices that aren't necessarily the best for us. Maybe we have a habit of spending more money than we would like. Maybe we have a hobby that we get easily inundated with and can spend lots of time pursuing. Maybe you stay up later than you would like. If we're not being careful, it can also be easy to choose a TV show over reading the Bible or sleeping in over coming to church. We so often do the things we want to do in the moment instead of the things that will ultimately be better for us, like choosing cake over broccoli. In psychology, there's this idea called present bias, that we're living in the moment, and we want to do what we want to do. So things get put off because you don't have to deal with it. Future you has to deal with it. So we stay up too late, we put off a project, we eat too many Oreos, because it's not our problem. It's future you's problem. And there's no bigger enemy to future you than present you. I also want to try to turn this back on. One, two, three. There we go. I prefer to use the head. In our passage today, God's people had neglected to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And through the prophet Haggai, the rulers in the community are being called out. The ultimate point of this text is that God must be our first priority. And this passage talks about the house of man and the house of God. Now, I've talked a lot before about the temple in the Old Testament. When the Israelites go to the promised land, they build the temple under the reign of King Solomon. But the Israelites continue to sin. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Israel is destroyed. They're conquered by the Babylonians. The temple, which had been so integral to religious life in Israel, was also destroyed. 48 years after that, the Babylonians themselves would be conquered by the Persians, and the Persians would actually allow the Israelites to return to the Holy Land for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And this is where the book of Ezra begins, Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. So the Jewish people are allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's what it means when it says house here. They had lost their land, and now they're allowed to go back. And we begin in Haggai, and 20 years have passed since the Israelites returned to Jerusalem. First part of verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, referring to Darius I, who was the king of Persia from 522 to 486 BC. And the book says that it's in the second year of his reign. Second part of verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Zerubbabel is the leader in Judah. If you study his lineage, you discover that he is a descendant of David. Joshua is the high priest. Haggai is the prophet who is addressing God's message to these two men. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Listen again to what it's saying. These people say the time has not yet come. They have already been delivered from slavery. They have been given back the land. They have been freed and permitted to rebuild the temple. And it's been almost 20 years, and the people are still saying, it's not the right time. We'll start building the temple tomorrow. We'll start next week. We'll start next year. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And here we begin to see the issue. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? They haven't built God's house, God's temple, but they have built homes for themselves. It's not time in 20 years to build God's house. But there was time to build their own houses. And based on the wording, it's not just that the people built some sort of lean-to or shack to live in. Where the text talks about paneled houses in the Hebrew, that they were building pretty, relative to the time, lavish homes to live in. That they really put some time into building good homes for themselves, meanwhile neglecting God's house. They're living for themselves and not for the Lord. And all the while, they're making God's will take a back seat. They're procrastinating. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about what exactly it is that you guys are doing. Think about your lives. Think about the values that you're representing. Verse 6 starts to get more into the situation for the people in Jerusalem. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. 
You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What the people are doing is not working. They are not flourishing. Their lives are in disarray. And it's because they're not starting with God. They're just spinning their wheels. In prophetic literature, these types of events are oftentimes seen as divine judgment. Nothing is working for the people. They keep trying to do things to take care of themselves, but it's never quite right. And there's only one thing to do. Verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's the second time we've heard this phrase, consider your ways. All of the work that the people are doing for themselves is worthless. What God wants them to do is to rebuild the temple. The temple will be pleasing to God. Even though the people have waited for 20 years, it will still be pleasing to God for them to reconstruct it. It's always the right time to honor God. It's always the right time for the right decision. And the people responding to this prophecy from Haggai and taking the initiative to rebuild the temple would be honoring the Lord by listening to what he's telling them. The passage continues in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? It's similar to what has already been said in this passage. But then it asks a rhetorical question. Why? They expected much, didn't happen. What they had, God blew away. Why? The end of verse 9 will answer that question. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And that leaves no doubt for the reason for why the people are struggling. It's the fact that they have neglected God's house. When the first temple was destroyed, a key element of the faith of the Jewish people was that the temple would eventually be rebuilt. The temple is the holy place where the one true God is with his people. And they had been miraculously freed. But even in spite of all of that, They don't start building. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. And this passage ends with God again reiterating the reason for the plight of the people. It is that the labor of the people is not being blessed. So what do you do with a text like that? I think this passage is very applicable. Obviously, we aren't supposed to go and build a temple, but that's not ultimately the most important part of this passage. The significance is that the people are choosing their own interests and desires over God. They're choosing their own houses over the house of God. 
They're choosing their own way over the will of God. With the exception of Jesus, that is the story that has repeated itself in every person who has ever lived. We put faith off. Instead of building God's house, we want to build our own house first. Instead of investing in God's kingdom, we want to pursue our own kingdoms first. We can feel like we want to get all of our ducks in a row before we really make time for faith. But there will always be excuses to not pursue God. There will always be things that come up, difficulties we have. If we wait until everything is perfect before we do something, it will never happen. Until things settle down at work, until things settle down at home, until I get through this upcoming procedure, or I'm just too busy right now, I just have to get through the first of the year. Or we might have an area of our life where we know we're falling short and where we don't feel like we're really serious about faith. And we might think, I can't do it right now. I drink way too much. Or I can't do it right now. I have too many issues with anger. I have this area of my life that's out of control. But it's not about taking care of ourselves first and then pursuing God after that. Because God meets us where we are. No matter what struggles you're in, no matter what imperfections of your life or places of darkness you have, God wants us to pursue him in this moment. And I think people so often get it backwards. Someone might know that he or she wants to get more involved in church, wants to be more committed to faith, but it doesn't happen. Or you're coming to church, but you know there's no real passion in your faith. For some of us, we haven't picked up a Bible in weeks or months. For others, we haven't really prayed to God since a time that we don't even remember. Maybe years, maybe ever. And I'm not saying this to make people feel shame. It's really hard sometimes. Sometimes we do feel less inclined to pursue God because of deep hurt. But so often, I think it's just that we get complacent. We do believe in the gospel. We do know that Jesus died for us, but we get caught up in the busyness of life and we focus on other things. When we make the time to focus on faith, a million other distractions will compete for our time. It's always going to be easier to turn on the TV or the computer. It's always going to be easier to pick up a cell phone than to pick up the Bible. The greatest command in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with everything you have. Faith was never meant to be a passive thing that we did on the side that we get to when we have time for. It's meant to be the focal point of our lives and the thing that drives us. For several years in my life when I was younger, faith wasn't my biggest priority. I'd go to church sometimes, sometimes even pretty regularly. Or I'd read a couple chapters of the Bible here and there. Maybe some of you today 
Know that you're not really pursuing God like you know you could. You know that you have gifts to grow that you could use to serve God and to love others and to build up God's church, but you just struggle to get started. You look to the future you, and you know you'd be happier. You know it's what God wants. But you're never going to get to that point if you don't start making God a priority. Because you will never wake up having become someone you're not becoming. When we put other things above our relationship with God, then necessarily our relationship with God won't be what it could be. If you're married and you're not working on loving your spouse and knowing them and growing with them, how will you ever have a great marriage? How will it be good if it's not allowed to develop? It's the same way with faith. For Haggai's audience, they decided to put their own perceived needs ahead of their faith and their relationship with God. And so they got neither. Sometimes God will allow a struggle and in that even there's grace because it shows the, the dependence that can only be found truly on him. It's not always easy to come to faith when everything is going great. But any worldly success or prosperity is ultimately short-lived compared to the eternal relationship that is found in God. Even in spite of the people's disobedience, God is, in this passage, still gracious. He sent prophets warning them and pointing them to the truth and calling them for them to repent. He caused droughts and hardships to show them his will, to show his displeasure with what they were doing, and to show them a better way. And I have one final thought as we wind down. I've said this already, I've said it before, that God takes you where you are. He takes you as you are. It isn't about fixing yourself up first and then turning to him. It's about trusting his son, Jesus, and the life that is found in him. It's about knowing that true purpose and joy was never meant to be found in our own houses, our own career, our own sports teams. It's found in God. It's the beginning of 2023. Many of us make New Year's resolutions. Maybe it's to exercise more, or to do a better job getting enough sleep, or to save on money, or to read more books. Any number of resolutions are beneficial. But the reason why we make New Year's resolutions is because there are areas in our lives where we know we need to change. Maybe it's something we've tried and failed at before, but that's in the past. It's a new day, a new week, a new month, a new year. It's a new chapter. It's a day that could be one of the most significant days of your lifetime. There is no better day than today. If you know that there are areas of weakness in your relationship with God, or you know that you've neglected getting to know him, make that your first priority of this new year. A daily pursuit of God is the only New Year's resolution that truly matters. 
and let us make that our first resolution of 2023, to follow him, to serve him, and to love others. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we rejoice that you are a gracious God, that even when we want to focus first on our own house, Lord, that you call us back because of your grace and love, Lord, that you show us a better way. Lord, may we have hearts that are turned to you. Lord, may we pursue you daily. May we pray without ceasing. May we have your word written on our hearts. Lord, may we love you and love others. Lord, may we serve you and serve others. In Jesus' name, amen.